0: on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. My name is Brandon Pollan, one of two co-hosts, and along with the other, F. Scott Field. And today, we are talking with another dean from a medical school that is truly an innovative model that is unique to better address the needs of society, And we are so thrilled to be talking across interdisciplinary lines as we are happy to welcome Dr. Clay Johnston on the podcast today. Now, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Clay Johnston has served as the inaugural dean of the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin since March 2014. His ambitious vision includes building a world-class medical school by creating a vital, inclusive health ecosystem that supports new and innovative models of education and healthcare delivery, all with a focus on improving health and making Austin a model-healthy city. He is also a neurologist specializing in stroke care and research. He is a graduate of Amherst College and Harvard Medical School and later received a PhD in epidemiology from the University of California in Berkeley and was a resident in neurology at UCSF, where he later trained in vascular neurology. And during his 20 years at UCSF, he rose the academic ranks to Professor of Neurology and Epidemiology, and he directed the Stroke Service. And Clay has offered more than 300 publications in scientific journals and has won several national awards for his research and teaching. In particular, he has published extensively in the Prevention and Treatment of Stroke and Transient Ischemic Attacks, or TIAs. He is perhaps best known for his studies describing the short-term risk of stroke in patients with transient ischemic attack and identifying patients at greatest risk, and also for his work related to measuring the impact of research. Now, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk with us. And, you know, I realize that you've done much more throughout your career that I've mentioned this evening, and I know I kept it pretty brief, but, you know, was there anything that you'd like our audience to know about you that I didn't mention in this brief intro here?
1: Well, I, th- I mean, I think you covered more than you than you needed to. I mean, I would just say that the for me, the journey really was, um, you know, starting out as a as a clinician and then getting frustrated with how little we knew as clinicians and, and then getting more and more focused on research over time. and then getting frustrated that research wasn't really where the problem sat that we for one thing, the research cycles were really slow, but the other was we had produced a lot of, of uh, a knowledge through research that wasn't incorporated into the healthcare system. And that the the real issues were how the healthcare system was organized. And so that kind of brought me through the adventure to, to being a dean.
2: Yeah. So Clay, I've got to ask, with Dell Medical School being a relatively new medical school, do you, do you think you could give our listeners some background on how the Dell, Dell Medical School started and how you got involved in that? Sure. Yeah. So it it was
1: um, uh, sort of an accident of history that UT um, University of Texas at Austin didn't have a medical school. It goes back to the eighteen eighties in two big cities, uh, Austin and Galveston, and they put the you know, the, the big uh, university in in Austin, and so they put the the, the med school in Galveston. Just to be fair. And and they sort of set in motion this uh, separation between health campuses and non-health campuses. So um, they had to change the rules for us to exist on a non-health campus. And Austin, in the meantime, had grown to be the the largest city in the U.S. without a medical school. It it wasn't the best time to start a medical school. It was at the tail end of of the recession. And and so they they took it to the voters. In order to make the, the math work, they needed to... Uh, raise uh, additional funds that weren't going to come from from the University of Texas, and the voters uh, voted to increase their property tax in in the Travis County, that's Austin's county, in order to uh, to start the med school. So, um, and that provides actually ongoing support and connects us to the community in a, in a really interesting way. So, for me, I was at uh, in San Francisco at, at UCSF, and um, and happy happy there, and. Uh, one of my friends was was out here in, in Austin and told me about what was going on and convinced me to just, you know, at least come out and take a look. So I came out with some crazy ideas that I figured would exclude me as a candidate. But in fact, they liked my ideas and thought it would be an interesting thing to try. So that they um, invited me to, to, to join and, uh, and start the school.
2: Yeah, crazy ideas don't get you off the hook that easy, right?
1: No, well, I mean, I guess it depends on just how crazy. But uh, in this case, they they also realized that the the current healthcare system wasn't wasn't going to work, wasn't uh, working in Austin, and um, that we really needed to examine things very
0: uh, differently in order to come up with a better system. That's a really interesting story and and you know this kind of kind of leads into the next question which is you know for our listeners comprised of various healthcare providers who perhaps are not sure about medical education. Do you think you could give our listeners some background on kind of the national average curriculum and structure of medical education and how it goes in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, sure. So, so medical school is, is uh, generally four years. There are a few programs that are short-tracked and are three years and involve undergraduate training, but, but mostly not. You finish your undergraduate degree and then medical school is four years. And they're generally organized into two years in the classroom, and that's often lecture-based with exams. And then two years doing rotations in hospitals and clinics, kind of, you know, seeing how things actually work um, and trailing docs, being part of teams, caring for patients, that kind of thing in the, in the latter two years.
2: Yeah. So, Clay, I'd like to kind of dive into some of those crazy ideas that brought you to Austin here. And uh, could you tell us specifically with the Dell program? What is the curriculum like and and what is the model of education at Dell and what makes it unique in terms of educational design and the opportunities for the students?
1: Yeah, so we we started by, you know, again, it's a wonderful opportunity to have a brand new school. So, you know, it's really hard to make changes in existing curricular existing med schools. There you know, there're a lot of advocates for the status quo. You have something that's working. It takes a lot more work to create something new, um, and people just, you know, they get comfortable with doing it the way they've always done it. So, in fact, that system of medical education that I described goes back over 100 years. This guy, Abraham Flexner, went around and visited all these med schools and worked with the American Medical Association to come up with standards for medical education, and those were the the, the rules that all med schools have, have been following. So, for, for us, though, the Things have changed in the last hundred years, and, and it's time to recognize that. And In some ways, they've changed in the health system, and the health system has gone astray from where we might want. And by that, I mean, you know, it's extremely expensive system, and the outcomes are are not that great, particularly when you consider how much we're spending. You know, so, you know, overall health outcomes in the U.S. are about like in, in Cuba, if you look at the World Health Organization rankings. Yet we spend um, you know ten thousand a year per person on health care, whereas Cuba spends eight hundred. I mean, there's a there's a huge difference, a huge disconnect. so in in thinking about the education, we have to think about, okay, well, how do we get here and how do we get to someplace better? and what is the unique position of a new school in in thinking differently and in and then creating the education that matches it? so so we really did a lot of work to think about, okay, where should Healthcare go, and then that defines what the physician, of the future really needs. What skill sets are important, and then that defines our curriculum. So, in looking at it, one one thing that's that's clear is that um, that you know knowledge is cheap nowadays. Um, the focus on memorization is no longer um, nearly as important as it as it was when that was a critical source of of uh, information. We have much more reliable sources at our fingertips all the time. And that's going to become more and more true as we move you know, from cell phones to artificial intelligence to integrated systems with our electronic health records. So we're, there's been too much emphasis on just gaining facts. Instead, we, we should focus on problem solving and understanding what quality data is and what's not quality data. And then there's the whole other aspect of medicine, the, the communications aspect of it, Understanding how health systems work in the business of medicine, human-centered design so we can come up with creative solutions to healthcare problems. Thinking about population health, so how do we keep people healthy outside of clinics and hospitals, and preventing the clinic visit, and so making it unnecessary, making unnecessary uh, hospital visit. And so those then become uh, critical elements in our, our curriculum. So the curriculum does look quite different. The, the students um, spend only a year on the basic sciences. We cheat a little bit because we take away their summer, so it's about 12 months. Most programs now have are, are about 18 months of the basic sciences. And then, we, and then they go uh, in their second year to do their clinical rotations, and they love doing that, makes it real. I and mean, the clinical rotations include uh, systems components to them, and then in their third year they have um innovation and leadership block and they spend that year working on projects and also with didactics around leadership and uh, many of the other elements that i just uh, discussed with with you the goal is to have projects that uh, ultimately impact uh, health and then their fourth year is is more of a uh, traditional year they absolutely need that in order to decide uh, you know what specialty they want to go into and if they do we hope you know many of them choose a primary care future, and, um, and they uh, uh, travel to, uh, to find a, a good fit for residency programs.
0: Yeah, I think that's fantastically. I couldn't help but recognize how many parallelisms there really were with what you said within kind of the status quo of medical education and kind of relatively similar issues there are kind of in the physical therapy realm as well. Some physical therapy programs have started, there's a couple new ones that have come out that have really started to come and really kind of come at it from an integrated model, kind of like what you guys have done at Dell to a degree, of course, and realize that's going to be profession specific, of course. But I think it's really interesting what you said at the end, there and, and I'm gonna ask one kind of off the script here because I don't know if I told you this, Clay, but my fiance is actually a surgical resident. She just started her first year starting in July. And she went through her whole medical school process, you know, deciding from the steps, exams to finding out what specialty she wanted. And what you struck, what you said at the end really struck me in terms of, you know, hopefully getting more physicians to go into primary care. And and I'm curious from your perspective, why is that currently not happening right now as it is?
1: Well, I think it's it's mostly a lifestyle decision. You know, the the, the reality is, primary care jobs are really hard. <laughs> you know, th- having to know a lot of everything, and then the pressures that have been placed on primary care docs by by their employers. You know, the number of patients they have to see, and the complexity of dealing with you know calls and data coming in after hours and on weekends, and it's hard, and then the reimbursement is actually less for primary care than it is for many specialties. So the, the economics today are not what they what they should be. I, our our hope is that 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 changes. That the if we really care about outcomes, and that's what what we want to to be disciplined towards. So you know what we're trying to do is be completely aligned with society's interests in health. So optimizing health which means tracking outcomes and caring about them and caring about people's health, whether they see you in clinic or not. Those are the goals that we all have as human beings, right? I mean, I, I do not have a goal to go to the clinic. I have zero interest in being hospitalized. I wanna be as healthy as possible. So if the system is aligned with that, then I'm better off and potentially too, we can save some money since we know we waste a lot of money in clinics and hospitals. And th- with that, though, the, the the group that's best positioned to, to provide that future are the primary care docs. And we just have to figure out how to redesign their their jobs so that they're uh, more uh, doable, gratifying, and reimburse appropriate for the level of, of work and anxiety associated with that job. And I, I should say, you know, on the physical therapy front, your, you know, thing I meant I didn't mention was um, interprofessionalism. It's a big part of our curriculum. It starts in week one. We don't have a physical therapy program at, at UT right now, so so we don't include you all. Um, that know if that'll change, but that's where we are right now. But we have, we do have physical therapists on our care teams. So we completely redesign care, and physical therapists are critical. So they're, um, for example, in our uh, joint pain integrated practice unit, you know, where we provide care for joint pain. Physical therapist role is, is um, absolutely critical. The same for back pain. And they're, you know, it's not that they're, uh, they're one of the important team members. It also includes social workers and nutritionists and, and primary care docs. And it happens to also uh, include an orthopedic surgeon, at least when necessary.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's great. Especially we're seeing more and more from the more educators that we're having on, really mentioning the importance of kind of this interdisciplinary approach to education with being able to kind of learn from other providers as well. Because I mean even professionally, just being a clinician for a couple of years, what I've been able to pick up from some of my colleagues that work in different avenues has been very extraordinarily helpful to how I manage my patients too. So I I think that's a fantastic take, and I think we're it looks like we're definitely going to see more of that in the future. And and you know, and Clay, going back to kind of Dell's program here a little bit, just because I know we were talking on the things of money before. Um, but just from from you know, for someone who kind of wants to know, what is the cost of the program? Um, at least from a tuition standpoint, of course, realizing that's going to vary based on, especially the last year with interviews where they go for residency and you know where they're flying and stuff, but. But kind of seeing where the tuition cost for Dell is and how it kind of compares to the national average among med schools in the U.S. here.
1: So um, for us, the, the tuition and fees is um, 19000 a year, and that puts us uh, substantially lower than most uh, uh, public institutions with in-state tuition. So the, the average um, in the U.S. now is 34000 per year in-state, and it's, uh, I don't know, fifty-two something like that, out-of-state. So, yeah, so we're, we're cheaper, we're cheaper on purpose. We, you know, it does put more pressure on us and primarily through philanthropy to make up the difference. But uh, we think it's so important to take away any financial pressure to, um, to go into a more lucrative future career. I mean, still people will make up their mind and do what they want to do. And we want to support all the decisions that can be made, but we don't want people to feel pressure from their loans multi-year loans to you know that they they have to immediately go to work making as much money as possible we want to take that away
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good avenue, and I applaud you for that, because that's something that's very similarly going on in the physical therapy realm as well, you know, with the cost of education continuing to rise nationally for PTs and, you know, overall reimbursement going down and therefore salaries not being as high. It's becoming much more financially straining overall, you know, to go into to become a therapist this day and age. So I, I really do applaud those models and those people that are really trying to, to realize that and realize that, you know, we can make better providers that aren't necessary if, if we can help control the cost better so they're not feeling so stressed to take those, you know, those higher paying jobs which are probably going to be very stressful and they may end up burning out, you know, and, and these kinds of things. So I think that's really a good take there to have. I'm glad you said that. And you know, and Clay, I recently read that Dell will lead a fifteen point five million dollar redesign of the Austin State Hospital online, which looks to be a great method to improve mental health and substance abuse care into this integrated system of comprehensive brain health. And you do you think you could expand on this to tell our listeners kind of what this specifically entails? Well,
1: Austin State Hospital, it was uh, it's been around since the eighteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, and and it. It some of the buildings have survived from that time. They're still used today, and you know it's. I think it's very typical of for uh, state organizations. There are now multiple state hospitals providing kind of the last resort for safety net mental health care for people who require hospitalizations. And it's over time, it just got run down. They never adequately funded uh, upkeep of the buildings. And in a whole series of buildings, and so it need it needs to be replaced. But the for us, that's not that interesting. If you just want to take the existing buildings and and build new shiny versions of them, then we really haven't solved the problem. What what'll happen is, you know, uh, twenty years from now, we'll have a new set of dilapidated buildings on on the Austin State Hospital property. What what we are interested in is how do we actually change the the models of care for for uh, the people in the state to reduce the need again for for hospitalizations, including mental health hospitalizations, and to help people through the transitions so that if they do need hospitalization, we have a, a gentle way to move them back into uh, into their communities. So it's a it's really an entire care redesign. It's not just a physical plant redesign. Physical plant will be part of it. But you know we're looking at okay, well, what can we do in communities? Can we send people out to meet with um, the mentally ill who are homeless and the high risk for further hospitalizations to reduce their uh, risk of coming back in? And um, so it's it's really a, a wonderful project, long overdue for American mental health care, and we're you know we're thrilled to to be playing a part in it.
2: Yeah, Clay, that's actually a perfect segue to my next question. But what are some other changes that Dell's looking to make uh, to continue to provide great education to their students for improved patient care and really to improve community health?
1: We're constantly evaluating our education and making changes as we go. So we're really data-driven. We believe that that's the way healthcare should be provided, education should work. And and obviously, research has known that (laughs) it needs to be data-driven for a long time. And so, you know, we're constantly changing what we do in the in the curriculum, and, and it's improving, and um, and will and continue to evolve as healthcare itself evolves. And then, in terms of community health, that is a big emphasis for us. The the key is to to recognize that that we can take resources that are currently wasted in hospitals and clinics, and also when we consider the impact of disease on on things like um, uh, productivity of, of individuals that interventions in the community can actually save society money. Um, not all are that way. Some cost money but pr- produce health and therefore are worthwhile. but more and more there are cost savings inter- interventions. and you know countries like Cuba have figured that out. That's how they can do it on such a low budget. So we're really interested in, in creating demonstrations for how those models can work. No, we're starting to do that in some very specific areas, and we'll uh, we'll accelerate that um, over the next couple of years.
0: Nice, and that'll be really exciting, kind of to see how that develops, and you know, as that gains ground, hopefully more uh, medical programs and stuff will kind of take note of that, and. You know, my next question is going to kind of vary a little bit because I know this is something that a couple other medical medical educators that we have talked with. When we talked with Bill Jeffries not too long ago, who is the the dean at University of Vermont, because we had him on to talk about the how their no let their no lecture medical um, curriculum is. But one thing he talked about that his bigot that he thinks should be the big change is, you know, changing the step exam in terms of making a pass fail rather than have so much weight on it for residency acceptance, you know, because he was worried that at the last year, you know, students aren't really putting as much time into their curriculum because they're worried about preparing for interviews, studying for their exams to get the optimal residency placement so that they can, you know, go forward from there. And, you know, I guess my question is, what, what does Dell do to help their students with preparing for the step exams and residency selection?
1: Yeah, well, this is one of my issues as well. I mean, I agree completely that the, the step exam is, is really unfortunate that it that people use those scores. I mean, they, they really don't tell us anything about who's going to be, or very, very little about who's going to be a good physician. And, you know, our, our current system for residency selection is is really misguided it's it's not going to uh, it's going to pick the the book nerds um, and not the not the humanistic physicians not necessarily even good problem solvers and I I think that's a, a mistake even so <laughs> you know our students do have to pass and um, so we do um, you know we do help them but uh, honestly our curriculum is not very focused on the step exam you know we we do um, have. You know, exams that they take along the way that that act as practice for the step, and then they can, um, if they do well on that, they can, you know, they know which areas they they don't need to study as much, and if they don't do well, they can focus on those. But, you know, we don't believe it makes sense to focus on the the kind of book knowledge that traditionally has uh, been overemphasized in uh, in medical education.
2: Yeah, Clay, I'm going to kind of change directions a little bit here. I'm, I'm curious, what are some aspects that you feel really need to be addressed in medical school education in order to best prepare these new students for becoming physicians in today's day and age?
1: Definitely the students are going to need to be comfortable uh, with data. You know, how do you how do you identify good data, you know, whether it's from an exam or um, history or from the literature, and then how do you factor that in and use it to solve problems? I mean, physicians have been doing that for forever, but it's going to be even more important as more and more data become available in, in the future. And, you know, artificial intelligence is going to change the importance of, of uh, you know, routine holding on to information and, and more algorithmic uh, medical care. That's going to not be in the hands of physicians anymore. And more complex problem solving is likely to stay there. And that's, I think, appropriate. The communication skills, um, leadership, those things are going to be even more important in the future. And I think about the systems of care and all that and um, creativity, also really important if we're going to have folks that uh, can not just be uh, subject to and victims of the uh, healthcare system, but can rise up and, and find the solutions for for uh, for the, the patients and, and also for, for practitioners to make the the um, the profession more um, uh, more enjoyable and uh, gratifying.
0: No, I, I love that, Clay. And, you know, we kind of face something similarly kind of in the physical therapy realm. But I know our with ours, we have an accrediting board. And we also, with ours, of course, you know, that most of the curriculums here on average, not all of them, but many of them, they tailor their curriculum around kind of the recommendations from the accreditation board, but also from the national licensing exam. Because a lot of the schools want their students to pass the first time because that's, Really looks good in the eyes of the board, but also it's kind of also partially how they get their money, you know. And kind of my follow up to that one overall is, you know, are there any governing boards kind of within you know medical education that kind of have control or say in that in any way, shape, or form? There's several. The the most important one for undergraduate medical education, so for for MD
1: um, training, is the LCME, uh, the Liaison Committee for Medical Education, and um, you know they they set the rules, and they come and accredited organizations, to make sure that you're following the rules. And I I think there's more flexibility in their system than, than folks realize, but they get so nervous about the LCB they, that that, for some of them, reduces their willingness to take risk. There's a similar organization that accredits residency programs, ACGME, and it also makes folks nervous about what they can do and in, in fact does enforce a lot of the status quo. Um, so those are, those are two. And then just as you, as you mentioned, the board exams too really reinforce uh, status quo learning. They try to evolve and they have evolved, but, but they, they, uh, they force a sort of uh, uh, focus on things that can be evaluated in multiple choice testing and that's, um, that is extremely limiting.
0: Yeah, no, I agree completely, and and Clay, kind of going back because I know you mentioned some of the limitations, and I think I, I agree with a lot of them. So I guess my follow up question to that is, you know, what can medical students, practicing physicians, and medical educators do to really help contribute to these issues to kind of help make it better?
1: You know, right now, the you know the system, we're all uh, physician morale is lower than it's than it's ever been. And uh, there are a variety of reasons why that's probably the case, but you know, we we need to be the ones that uh, work with our colleagues and, and teams to to find those solutions and to and to push them forward. And that's true whether you know it's medical students, practicing physicians, educators. But it's you know it's not just us; it's you guys too, right? This is the same system that yours that you're in. And it's many others. And I think we've let the fee-for-service system kind of beat us all into the ground. And we need to, uh, to be the ones to, to uh, find the solutions, not wait for others to, to define them for us.
2: Yeah, Clay, I love that take on it. I mean, we really have to be proactive uh, no matter what field we're in. Uh, if we're going to look to make medicine better, we definitely need to take the reins and, and take charge. Uh, and I'm glad to see a lot, of, a lot of people recognizing that and finally starting to dig their heels in and do the work. We, we like to end each episode with this last question to each of our guests. Uh, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, whether it be medical or other healthcare provider related, which aspect would you change and how would you change it?
1: Favorite one is, is actually the, the board exam uh, to make the, the board exams pass fail. So, but it sounds like that that has been taken. So, I'll give you I'll give you another one. We didn't really talk about residency education, and uh, residency education has not changed much at all um, in the many years since it it's been going on. And uh, and that to me is another area that we need to really examine. And you know, I think what's the change that's necessary? I think we need more flexibility in defining what the what the, the the curriculum
0: and the competencies should be for the residents regardless of specialty interesting know I think that's an interesting take on that clay and you know kind of one word to kind of follow up kind of with what you said before kind of about the board exam and making it pass fail do you feel like there's been any motion to do that or work towards that's actually going to make that a reality at any point in the near future or not not really
1: well I mean there's some push to to think differently about residency programs, including from the ACGME, which is sponsored uh, uh, groups to think differently about it. The AMA and the AAMC are also pushing that agenda. So, you know, I think it, it it's nice that when the when the sort of the bodies that are considered the most conservative are are in, and are blamed for blocking change are actually promoting change. So it, it, it may be that we need to, you know, to push them and, uh, and to show what's possible and, and that all of us then can be, uh, you know, liberated to move things around to move things forward more quickly.
0: That's awesome, Clay. You know, I think that's a really good take. And, you know, thank you so much for, you know, the great content today, because I definitely learned a couple new things regards to the program, but also about medical education. And I think, what you and your team are working on to do is really a really good step in the right direction. And I really applaud you guys for what you guys are doing. Cause I think we need more of this on a national basis. So first and foremost, thank you for that. But, but also thank you for coming on this evening to kind of share this insight with our listeners. Cause I am really thinking this is going to be some really good stuff for them. And you know, and Clay, if someone's got questions for you, kind of regarding Dell or anything, wh- where can people find you online and on social media?
1: Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Clay Dell Med, you know, short for Dell Medical School. Um, And yeah, that's probably the easiest way to reach me. Very cool. Well, thank you again so
0: much, Clay. It's always a pleasure. My pleasure. All right, take care. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content.
2: If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter